0: Welcome to the Studying the Bible podcast, where every Thursday, Pastors Dylan Dodson and Brian Androsian study a book of the Bible, verse by verse, to see what is being communicated and how we can use it to grow in our relationship with Jesus. We pray that today's podcast can help you grow just a little bit closer to Christ. Well, welcome to our sixth and final session in our Bible study through the book of Habakkuk. Today, we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter three, covering the entirety of the chapter. So to give a little recap of where we've been so far, in chapter 2, which we just came out of, we read the five woes that were given to Habakkuk by God. And in this section, we saw over and over again how God would deal, uh, how God was going to deal with Babylon because of their oppression, because of how they oppressed those that were uh, weaker than they were, and how God will deal with anyone who oppresses someone weaker than them. So this wasn't just, this was, in this situation, it was about Babylon but this can be interpreted for for anyone that oppresses somebody or oppresses a group of people that's weaker than them. The chapter ended with an indictment on Babylon's uh, idol worship and a reassurance to Judah that he, uh, the God that they worship, is so much more powerful than these handmade gods that Babylon worshipped. So as we move into chapter 3, as the book comes to a close, the final chapter of Habakkuk, it consists of a prayer or a song from Habakkuk to the Lord showing his faith in the Lord despite all these uncertain and terrifying circumstances that he finds himself in. So on that note, we're going to move into Habakkuk chapter 3. We're starting verse 1, and it says this. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shuganoth. So chapter 3 opens with a superscription, just like we saw in chapter 1. And what, what this is, it's a title verse that's explaining what the following text is about. So we have a prayer here, or because uh, Habakkuk was most likely a temple musician, this is likely considered, this was likely uh, considered a song or a hymn. And the verse ends by saying, according to Shigonoth, the only other place this word is found in the Bible is in the title of Psalm chapter 7, which says, a Shigan of David, which he's saying to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. The exact meaning of this word isn't known, but it's most likely a musical notation. It likely means that this is supposed to be a passionate song or a, or a, a, a more upbeat song, a more passionate song in worship of the Lord. It moves on to uh, verse two. It says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. So this verse, verse two, is the only verse in the chapter that where Habakkuk is actually asking God to do something. Like kind of like the rest of the book is done. However, after this verse, Habakkuk moves on to praise the Lord, and, and Habakkuk mentioning the reports that he's heard about the Lord is is reference to the history of the Lord working to protect the people of Israel. Uh, that that these the, the stories that we that we see in the Bible in the book of uh, like in the book of Exodus, these are stories that would have been passed down from generation to generation of the Israelites. So Habakkuk would have absolutely known that God, about God saving the Israelites from bondage in Egypt and delivering them to freedom out of the hands of their oppressor, which is the Egyptians. So because of what God has done to protect his people, Habakkuk stands in awe of his deeds. And he continues to plead with God to work in the situation in the same way that he worked in the past. Revive your work that you did uh, in delivering the, the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians and deliver us from the hands of the Babylonians. He pleads with God to have mercy on them in the midst of his wrath or in his dealing with the wickedness of the Babylonians. He's saying, even though you're dealing with them, you're going to deal with their wickedness, but have mercy on us in the midst of your judgment, in the midst of your dealing with the wickedness that exists. He moves on to verse 3. It says, God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. So verses three through seven, these next few verses, describe a theophany, which is a visible manifestation of God. What's likely being described here is that God is leading the, Israel, is, is God leading the Israelites through the wilderness. These areas mentioned, uh, are the, they're south of Judah, and this portion of the song would have reminded its hearers of God's previous faithfulness to his people when he delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians uh, and, and led them through the wilderness. It continues in verse four, he says, his brilliance is like the light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. The statement that his power is hidden in his hand—it likely means, or it's likely meant to focus the reader's attention on God's uh, readiness and willingness to act to protect His people. So, so kind of like uh, directing their attention towards God being willing to use action and being willing to act to protect His people. Then, in verse five, he says, "Plague goes before him, and pestilence follows in his steps." So plague and pestilence are terms that were associated with war. Uh, Though We don't really think of plagues and pestilence a whole lot nowadays, especially kind of in in the U.S. These were destructive forces that people at this time were extremely familiar with. So Habakkuk is using plagues and pestilence as examples of forces of nature that God is able to use against those that oppose him. It continues in verses 6 and 7. It says, He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations." the age-old mountains break apart the ancient hills sink down his pathways are ancient i see the tents of cushion and distress and the tents uh, and the tent curtains of the land of midian tremble so habakkuk is continuing with describing the awesome power of god here the mountains and hills these are immovable objects and they were seen as as mighty and lasting i mean obviously they are but especially in, in this time these were seen as just these mighty forces that that were just kind of always there the hills and the mountains. However, what he's saying is even the hills and the mountains, they break apart and they sink down at the mercy of God. That's how powerful God is. When he says his pathways are ancient, this is a reference to God's eternal nature, that even though the mountains seem to be age old, God is eternal and he outlasts anything that this earth has to offer. He references Cush and Midian as ways to say that the nations also tremble at the mercy of God. That, that, that the hills, the mountains, the, the, the kind of immovable objects of this earth are nothing compared to how powerful God is. And because of that, even the nations, even powerful nations, tremble at his mercy. He continues in verses 8 and 9. He says, are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your, at, is your wrath against the rivers, or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses your victorious chariot?" You took the sheath from your bow the arrows are ready to be used with an oath you split the earth with rivers see these rhetorical questions posed to god about him being angry at the rivers and if his wrath and his fury is against the sea they're likely another reference to the exodus story see god had already turned uh blood god had already turned the rivers to blood in egypt and during the plagues and he had already shown his control over the red sea and the jordan river and parting them he had already shown that his control over these over the rivers and the seas see in the can- in the Canaanite creation myth rivers and seas are uh, personified cosmic forces that are opposed to the God Baal and and what we're seeing here is that no force on earth can stand up against God even these mighty forces these mountains these hills these rivers these seas these things that are seen as just so much mightier than any humans even those can't stand up to the mightiness and the The awesomeness of God's power continues in verses ten and eleven. Says the mountains see you and shudder; a downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lists its its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. So he talks about the sun and moon standing still here. This isn't just uh, flowery language. But Habakkuk is referencing an event that actually took place and using what God did in the past to praise him and to worship him now. In the book of Joshua, the Israelites were battling against and conquering the Amorites, and Joshua spoke to the Lord and asked him to make the sun stand still so they could continue to fight in the daylight, which God granted. We see this in Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua 10, verses 12 and 13, he says this. "It says, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon over the valley of ijalon and the, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't it written in the book of Jashar, which, which, uh, which was an ancient Israelite collection of poems? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. See, Habakkuk isn't just coming up with these things or th- these ideas to praise God on his own, but he's pulling from actual events and actual acts that God did in the past That w- when he would protect his people and deliver his people, and he's praising God because of his continued faithfulness. He's looking at what God has done in the past. He's saying, this is how you've protected us in the past, how you've protected the Israelites in the past, and he's just worshiping God because he's been continually faithful to his chosen people. They continue starting in verse 12. It says you march across the earth with indignation you trample down the nations in wrath you come out to save your people to save your anointed you crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck you pierce his head with his own spear his warriors storm out to scatter us gloating as if to secretly devour the weak you tread the sea with your horses stirring up the vast water so Habakkuk is just here just continuing on about God's power and his ability to defeat his enemies you Remember, Habakkuk is being faced with this terrifying and seemingly uh, unwinnable and impossible situation with the knowledge that the Babylonians will rise up against them. However, despite that fear, he's worshiping God, and he's praising God, and he's praising him for his ability to overcome those that come up against him. He continues in verse 16. He says, "'I heard, and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood.'" Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us." So here Habakkuk moves on from describing this, this uh, theophany to describing his reaction to it. Likely we, uh, are, are like we see elsewhere in the Bible, an interaction with God brings people to their knees and forces them to confront their own sin and their own shortcomings. Habakkuk says that he trembled within and rottenness entered his bones. And this is similar to Isaiah's reaction when, uh, when he has a vision from the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. If we go over to Isaiah chapter 6 in the first handful of verses, Isaiah has a similar reaction when being confronted or with coming face-to-face with the Lord. Starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, it says, "...in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on high on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple." Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings, with two covering their faces, two covering their feet, and with two they flew, and called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundation of the doorway shook at the, at the sound of their voice, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe, woe am I, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies." See, it's, it's, almost, it's almost silly at this point that Habakkuk was questioning God just, just a handful of verses ago. Even though God welcomed his questioning, but however, after being faced with God, we see him acknowledging his own sinfulness, acknowledging his, his unworthiness to come before God. And this is what a true interaction with God should do in all of us. None of us are worthy to approach God. Habakkuk wasn't, Isaiah wasn't, we aren't, but he allows it and he welcomes it. However, our response to an interaction with God should be similar to Habakkuk's and Isaiah's. It should be to acknowledge our shortcoming, to acknowledge our sinfulness, to acknowledge that we're not worthy to come before God, but despite our unworthiness, he allows us to come before him. Then he continues in verse 17, these last handful of verses as we close out this chapter. It says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no f- fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate the Lord. I'll rejoice in the the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. So the most most fascinating part of Habakkuk is that from his first plea to the end of the book, so from, from verse one of chapter one to verse 19 of chapter three, his situation hasn't changed at all. He, in fact, if anything, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse because he's learned of God's plan to use the Babylonians uh, against them. But his situation hasn't changed. He's still, the, the people of Judah are still wicked. There's still injustice going on. It's the exact same things that he was crying out to God for. The only difference is he has found that God plans to use one of the strongest enemies of theirs against them. So his situation hasn't changed. His situation's only got worse However, despite the fact that he probably didn't get the answer he wanted, he still praises God. How incredible is that? He does, I'm sure he didn't get the answer he wanted. God didn't say, this is what we're going to do to, to fix Judah and everything's going to be all great. He, he said that he's going to bring up a, th- this terrifying army against them. And despite all of this, he still praises God. See, Habakkuk knows that God will have the ultimate victory, even though it might not come in his lifetime, which it doesn't. Even if it doesn't come in his lifetime, he knows that the ultimate victory belongs to God. The one commentator uh, summarizes the last four verses, these last handful of verses of Habakkuk, really well. I really like this. He says this. He says, uh, "What is it that makes this chapter, particularly the final fo- the final verses, so forceful? In my judgment, it is the courageous way in which Habakkuk embraces all the calamities he can imagine, and nevertheless triumphs over them in the knowledge and love of his Savior." See, I wonder if this would be our response. I wonder if it would be my response. Whatever it is that you're crying out to God for, what if He responded, uh, what if he responded by saying that it's simply going to get worse? That it's not going to get better, not, not in your lifetime at least, that He'll have the final victory. He has complete control, but it might not the, the victory that you want to see might not come in your lifetime. What would our response be? What would my response be? Would we respond with praise like Habakkuk did? Or would we respond with anger, confusion, or, or uh, uh, depression? Or would we just be angry with God that he's not answering our prayers in the way that we want him answered? See, Habakkuk looked at his situation. He's still in the same situation he was in before. Things are not getting better. If anything, things are going to get worse, and he still praises God for everything that he's done because of his faithfulness, because he knows that the ultimate victory belongs to God. So as we wrap up chapter 3, and as we wrap up the entire book of Habakkuk, I'm going to give you three takeaways that we can see from not just this final chapter, but through the entire book. And the first is this, is that just as we saw from the beginning and and we saw from the first chapter and the second chapter, it's this, is that God welcomes your questions. God welcomes your questions. God didn't shame Habakkuk for crying out to him, but he welcomed his pleas. Uh, God welcomes your questions, but you've got to actually bring them to him. we all have questions for god but how rare do we actually bring them to him and cry out to god and actually ask the questions to him instead of just wondering them in our own minds bring your questions to god they may not get answered in the manner that you want them to they may not get answered on your timeline they may not get they may not get the responses that you're hoping that they'll get but god welcomes the questions of those that follow him god welcomes your questions second thing we can see from this book is that god has complete control god has complete control your situation may seem dire. Your your situation may actually be dire. You might be sitting in the middle of a situation that just seems like there's no way out of. However, God has complete control over your situation. Nothing surprises him. He knows the outcome before it happens. Just as we see in Habakkuk, God has control over every situation, even when things feel completely out of control. He has the final say. He has the ultimate control. And the third thing we can see from this book is that God will have the final victory. God will have the final victory. There's nothing that you or, and I, you or I will ever face that God doesn't and won't have victory over. While that victory may not come in our timeline, we may not see kind of the results of that victory in the way that we want to see it, we can rest assured that God will have the ultimate victory. Habakkuk, uh, wouldn't, he, he, doesn't, he wouldn't end up living to see the Babylonians conquered. Yet he could still praise God because he knew that he would have the final victory over his enemies. In the same way, we can worship and praise God because we know that he reigns over everything. He reigns over anything that we fear and anything that we can't overcome on our own. Anything like that, God can overcome even though we can't. He will have the final victory. So, even though things may not get answered in our timeline, even though we uh, may be sitting in the middle of a situation that seems like there's no way out of, and even though we might not see a way out of it, maybe even in our entire life, we may go in our entire life without seeing a, situa- seeing a way out of a situation that we might be dealing with. But we can know that from an eternal standpoint, God has the ultimate victory. God will overcome. God has overcome. Anything that you, and I are, you, or, you or I are up against, he has victory over. And that's what we see from in chapter 3. And that's what we can see throughout the entire book of Habakkuk.